Hello friends, I'm finally writing a book to codify the basis for my signature Mike Rochelle & Associates Corporate Leadership Accelerator course. And I need an upvote from you to gain favorable publishing status. It is co-titled Growing the Next Version of You, The Leadership in Accelerator, A Journey for Growing Success in Life, Love, and Leadership. Greetings and welcome to the Growing the Next Version of You show. Every week or so I get together with thought leaders and we talk about the trends that are happening in the world and we think of life from a mind, body, and spirit perspective because that's what servant leaders do. So join me. Hello everyone, this is Mike Rochelle here on Growing the Next Version of You with Dr. Judy Glick-Smith. Judy, it's been a while since we've met. How are, you how are you doing and where are you today? Well, I am sitting in my home in Cumming, Georgia, uh, which is about 45 miles north of downtown Atlanta. Okay. Uh, I am doing doing fine, although I do have some things to tell you about what's going on with me, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. But um, um, I'm still doing my consulting work and uh, writing my uh, fifth book. Oh, and wow. So I'm, I, I pretty much have crafted a life that's very fun and it's it's kind of neat. I like it. Very cool. Well, Judy, I'll uh, we'll get into who you are and where you come from in just a moment. But uh, I'd like to ask really quickly: What are your top three tips for twenty twenty three? Well, as you know, Mike, I am all into uh, being in flow. So my top number one is that I encourage people to try to maximize their flow states which results in a better um, feelings of well-being and productivity and um, uh, just happiness in general. Sure. That's, that's number one. Number okay. two, I'm reading a book uh, that was written by Vivek Murphy, who is our Surgeon General, on, um, and it's called Together. And it's about the loneliness epidemic uh, in, in not just in our country, but in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and it's all about uh, the tip is to build community for yourself. Sure. Um, so and we can get into that if we if you want to explore that a little bit. Definitely. And the third thing is has really become huge in my life. And that for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, but I, I am so distressed about the level of mean-spiritedness in the world. And I, I would like, my other tip is to just practice loving kindness 
every day. So and all it is, is, and sometimes all you need to do is smile at somebody to practice loving kindness. So Definitely. those are my three tips. Very good. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and I, as I recall, you had a relative that was somewhat into the peace movement. Is that not correct? My my grandfather yeah. was pre-peace movement. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. But he was he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1981. Wow. And uh, he didn't get it, but he was right. nominated. Uh, he had been in the World Council of Churches for 10 years. He was active in the Church of the Brethren, which is the church that I grew up in. Uh, it's uh, Church of the Brethren is one of the three historic peace churches, which uh, you've got the Mennonites and the Brethren and uh, Quakers in that little trifecta. And so he was he was the general sec- secretary for uh the Church of the Brethren, and then he went to Geneva, Switzerland for 10 years to be a representative with the World Council of Churches. And then later on in his life, he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. So that that's kind of what that connection is. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, Judy, when you and I met, uh, which had to be in about 1999 or 2000. Oh, I think it was before that. <laughs> well, I know... Um, <laughs> I was trying to remember one of the fun things. Yeah, it may have been. Um, I moved to Dallas in 99. Uh, so oh, well, maybe it was. Yeah, so probably for about a year before I was coming in as they were building my house. Uh, but I was a member of SIM and I started the RLF. So pretty much right. as soon as I got here, uh, you started coming and speaking to my students. And that's where we got to know each other uh, quite well. Right. Uh, you moved to Atlanta in what year? 2000, I, I moved back here in 2004. I 2004, moved, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so so it was about four years, five years that we were actively engaged together. You had a business that back then uh, doing documentation for systems. Right. And, uh, and I was, uh, let's see, at that time, um, I was primarily just doing CRM consulting um, in that era of my of my life. Right. Uh, I was le- uh, leading the leadership forum and every year you would come to speak. Um, and it was very powerful. Um, I, one of my best memories with you personally, and I cannot remember which birthday it was. You'll have to tell me because my son, who's now 22 was 18 months old. Oh my. <laughs> so it was, it was at least 19, you know, so, some, somewhere around that time period. And you had it at a barn and there were horses. Oh, that, yeah, that was my 50th birthday. That was your 50th, okay. <laughs> that would have been 2001, July oh, okay. of 2001. Okay, that makes sense. So he was about yeah. 18, he was about 18, somewhere a year, 18 months old, something like that. Right. And uh, he was deathly afraid of the, ho- of the little pony or horse or wherever you're trying to put him <laughs> on. We finally got him sitting on it so we could take a picture. I'm going right. to I'll find that picture and see if I can put it in the show later. Um. But you were always generous with your time. You came every year that I asked you. And actually, you've come back a couple of times to different uh, events that I've had and and spoken about books that you've written and things like that. So, you know, from a community perspective, that second tip that you gave, you live that, right? It's not something that you just talk about. Um, 
So, but let's go back in community, all the way back to the beginning of Judy Glick-Smith. You know, where were you born? Who were your parents? Kind of what were your um, both community and philosophical influences? And then, and then from there, work us up to the present. And if, if uh, there are stories that I remember that I, uh, that I, uh, I may uh, point you in that direction again, if, uh, if you're willing okay. and able to go there. Sure. Well, I was born on July 1st, 1951, um, in Richmond, Virginia. My daddy was, my daddy became a doctor that day. Oh, wow. And he was, he finished his residency the day I was born. And we moved to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia with, in, in a little tiny town called Broadway. And, um, he set up a clinic with his best friend, Bill Hotchkiss, and um, the Hotchkisses um, had a little girl 10 days before me who became my absolutely best friend in the whole wide world. And so uh, they had six kids. We had six kids. Uh, and so it was, a, uh, and they lived, we lived on a hill and uh, uh, it was a chaotic, wonderful childhood that was you never felt unsafe. You never, you, there was plenty of room to run and play and get into stuff. And eventually I had horses. Uh, Marianne had horses. She's the, the woman I was telling you about. Um, and so we would, we would get on our horse and just be gone all day. I mean, pack a ham wow. sandwich and go. Yeah. So uh, that it was just an idyllic childhood uh, when I look back on it um, my forgot where I was going with that but <laughs> chaotic childhood I think is what you would yeah it, it was just it was just really I, I just think back on it and it was just wonderful uh, the town was tiny there were only 200 people in my graduating high school class. And what was the town again? Broadway. Broadway. Mm -hmm. wow. So, um, and I still, I run a zoom call every month with all the people that I went to high school with. So that's oh, been no. kind of fun. We started doing that in COVID and it's kind of fun to hear the stories and hear how other people were growing up when, you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting. Right. But um, church was a big thing in my in my grow in my childhood. I mean, um, both my grandfathers were ministers, so um, my uh, I mean we we went to church every Sunday. My mother was the choir director. My dad was a deacon. You know, it was that yeah. that kind of thing in a small town in rural Virginia. So my, my foundational stuff comes out of that spiritual practice that is the Church of the Brethren. Uh, and it is focused primarily on peace and love and, uh, and service, servant leadership, although it wasn't called that sure. at the time. Yeah. Um, but my daddy always demonstrated that. To, my dad and my mom demonstrated that to me every day of their lives. Right. So that was, that was, I guess, a, a huge influencer on me. 
my dad was one of 12, uh, but my mom only had uh, a brother. So, but the, my family is huge. So family is, is really a big thing with me also. Um, So I went to high school, came out of high school. I loved horses. I was riding and training Tennessee walking horses in my high school years. And uh, I mean, I'd get my homework done. Daddy would take me to the barn. I would be at the barn until nine or 10 at night and then riding whatever they wanted. I was just a little barn rat. That's what we called the kids that would go ride in the barn. And they just put me on anything and I would just take off. It was awesome. Uh, but uh, the my first job out of high school was to be a, a dude wrangler on the Skyline Drive of Virginia. I went, um, if you're the Blue Ridge Parkway, part of it is called the Skyline Drive up, up around where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And there are two... Um, uh, areas are Skyland and Big Meadows, and I was a dude wrangler at Big Meadows, and so I would take people out on rides, and I did that six days a week all summer, and that was heaven for me. Got paid two hundred dollars a month plus room and board. It was wow. <laughs> I was rich. <laughs> so uh, then. Uh, I went to college. I wasn't ready and ended up getting pregnant and having my daughter mm-hmm. and uh, married my high school sweetheart. And we uh, we were together for a few years, uh, but that just didn't take. Um, and then I moved to Atlanta in um well, well, while we were married, we were in East Tennessee, where I went went to school at East Tennessee State University and majored in fine arts. Okay. Uh, but I never got the degree. Um, I got I had three years of fine arts, and then decided mm-hmm. I wanted to go into fashion design. This is, this shows you how you can either say that I am totally confused, <laughs> or I'm very well rounded. Right. <laughs> So, uh, so I came to Atlanta to get a degree in fashion design in 1974, I think. Okay. And I finally got that associate degree in 75. And, uh, but I, I could not afford to go to New York City, which is where if you're going to be in fashion, that's where you had to go. And I had a baby. And I was a single mom. So I went to work as a secretary for Pete Marwick, which is now KPMG. Right. Um, and I stayed with Pete Marwick for uh, three, no, four years, I think, in, as secretary in the tax department. Huh. And decided to go back to school in 1977. And because I kept, I was writing offer letters for the these kids coming out of school and they were getting paid big bucks, 18,000 a year. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to go be an accountant. And so I went back to school, Georgia state, uh, to get a degree in accounting. And, um, uh, I held up my end of the curve 
I was not good at accounting. Everybody said, you'll be good at accounting because you're good at math. <laughs> it has nothing to do with math. Right. At all. You have to know the rules, you know. But while I was in school, I discovered computers. And that was all she wrote, man. Once I found out, once I discovered computers, I knew that's where I wanted to go. So um, I got all my electives in information systems. So I basically had a double major in accounting and information systems. So, um, and that was back in the day where you had to punch your own cards, right. leave, you know, this was 1977. Yeah. So I decided I was going to try to find a, a job as a systems analyst or a programmer. And I start every lunchtime. I was out pounding the pavement and I happened to find out that Atlanta Gaslight had laid off or they had lost five people in two weeks, which should have told me something, but they needed people and they were willing to train. And so I got a job, I actually took a cut in pay to, to um, go to work as a programmer for them. But I knew that very quickly I would recoup that. And so um, uh, I decided, so I went to work for them, became an assembler programmer, CICS, command level and macro level, uh, and uh, learned Fortran on the job because they were pushing pushing gas through the pipelines using Fortran. So I had to learn Fortran. I had to learn all the business technologies, which was uh, uh, business, business applications were done in Assembler back then. Right. Uh, IBM 360. We even had a machine. I didn't know how to do this. I never learned how to do it. But it was a machine that was a on a board or a program that was on a board and you had to wire it. Wow. And put it put it into the machine. So right. Uh, so I could I can there was a time where I could decode a, I could debug a system reading a hex stump. And uh, and I loved that. But what I found was while I was really good at it, I wasn't fast. And you had to be fast and fast and accurate. But I, it just the, the stress of it and being on call. The last time I was on call, it was because payroll went down. And I had to go in and figure out what somebody else had done. And I'm going like, I am not doing this. I so what I wanted to do was document those systems so that the next person that got called at two o'clock in the morning didn't have to go through what I did. Right. And so I decided I went out on my own. Well, I went to Atlanta, went from Atlanta Gaslight to Atlanta newspapers. And there I was a again, I was doing well, no, I was on COBOL on the circulation system at Atlanta newspapers. And I got to do a couple of inside consulting gigs, evaluating systems. Like they wanted to get word processing systems and this is before PCs. So we were looking at 50, IBM 5520, we looked at Wang's, we looked at, you know, all these different 
uh, systems that were out there for word processing, and I was the I was the go-to person. Um, although the IBM salesman did not want to, he would not even shake my hand when I met him, even though I was the lead on that project. And I said, I he was so not happy that I was a woman doing this. He just would not even talk to me. Which yeah, so, so Judy, and you literally, I mean, he wouldn't look at you in the eye and things like that, right? So I, I was just at uh, Elevate IT and we had a women in IT panel there. And the ladies that were there were talking about experiences that they had. I think your era was probably even tougher on women than what these ladies have gone through. Right. So I mean, it was just it was from that perspective, that guy was it was just beneath him to talk yes. to somebody that was not a man. Right. Yeah. Men so, were always the decision makers. Right. But you've you've dealt with this your whole career. So My whole career. So how do you how do you deal with it now? Do you still run into it or is it is it kind of uh, waning in your experience now? I just don't mess with it anymore. If they don't want to work with me, fine. Go go somewhere else. Yeah. I did. I don't. I don't have time for that kind of stress. You know, I, that's on them. It, it, it's. We said we weren't going to cuss, but I could say, you know, tell them where to go, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you're lost, man. You know. <laughs> so, just so everybody knows, Judy is not the one that was saying that she would cuss. I would. I said. Every once in a while, I will cuss and I will go and edit that out, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but that's um, the kind of friends we are, so we could be that open. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I when I went to work at Atlanta Gaslight, the men they were all men before I came, and they hired when they lost all those people, they hired three women wow. in their place. They were desperate. <laughs> yes. And I came in one morning and there was a book laying open on my desk that was a Christian, Christian based book. And it was open to a page that said, women don't need to understand why water boils. They just need to know that it will eventually. And I knew who did it. And I just closed it up, put it back on his desk and said, here you go. <laughs> but, you know, that's the world we came out of. The 50s right. was right there. So, yeah. but anyway, so then I was at Atlanta Gaslight um, and, and, and then Atlanta Newspapers, which was really fun. I like working for the newspaper because... You know, the product was everybody sat around read newspaper every morning because that was our product, you know, so right. that was kind of fun. But um, uh, but then I decided I really I heard about consulting and independent contracting. That was kind of just getting started. And I thought, you know, that's what I want. I, I really just don't like I've never been a corporate person. I just, I just like the the idea of having some freedom to, to, um, 
even though I work all the time anyway, but it's, I'm working for me. So, um, I went out on my own. Uh, I learned about a contract at Atlanta at uh, Georgia Power and I got the job. It was a technical writing job. And the uh, the fellow who hired me hired me because I could program. Mm-hmm. And and because he said if he couldn't find me a technical writing job, he could find me a programming job. But I never program I never programmed again after that because it, it was right on the cusp of where people were realizing they needed documentation. Mm-hmm. So um, not just end user documentation, but what I wanted to focus on was documentation for programmers in a maintenance environment. And that's what I focused my, uh, my work on and the, my marketing and all that. So, so what, what year did you start your own company then? Well, I, I was independent in 83, okay. but I didn't really start a f- for real business until I moved to Texas in 87. Okay. Um, so my, my ex-husband worked for IBM. Uh, this is my second husband. He worked for IBM and we moved to Texas in uh, 1987. And I did not want to go to work for somebody. So I marketed like a mad woman uh, from Atlanta for about six months and uh, found a gig with the the system, what was called the system center, I think was over off of um, off of Beltline. And they have let me think, hold on. Oh, I should look this up. They still have a product that is used in the IBM mainframe world. Um, And they need somebody to document it at a code level because the guy that did it uh, was um, the guy who created this system. It was a system for moving big, big blocks of, of information, big blocks of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh man, it's driving me crazy. I can't think of what it's called now because I bet you'd know it. But anyway, um, when I went to interview for the job, uh, they asked me, "How do how did how do you deal with screamers?" I said, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> so the guy that document that that uh, wrote this thing was a screamer, huh? Yeah, he was he was a he was a piece of work, but the systems guys always were. They're very. I mean, when I was at Atlanta newspapers, there was a guy that I had to. I was writing standards for Atlanta newspaper, and I had to go talk to the guy who was the systems programmer. He weighed about three hundred pounds. Nobody wanted to ride on the elevator with him in the summertime. I mean, it was bad, but I, I went down to his office and asked him if we could have a chat and his office, he's, he was a, a listings hoarder. Have you ever run into somebody like that? His whole office was full of listings and he had made a maze. You had to walk through the maze to get back to his desk, which was in the far corner. And, all the chairs had listings on them. And I just 
Grayson went back there and sat down and had a conversation with him and found out he drove a Corvette and, you know, he just had this other side of him that was so interesting. So the systems guys are fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, so when I got to the system center, um, I uh, met this guy and I was reading assembler code, writing the documentation for it. And I would take it in his office and say, could you review this for me? And he'd say, it doesn't do that. And he would say a few choice words, but he, <laughs> I said, well, you know, in the code right here, it looks like it really does. And then he'd kind of grumble a little bit and he'd either confirm or tell me what it really was or whatever. But he was with him. I found out I did a little fishing about him, found out he played in the Fort Worth Symphony. Wow. And I went I walked in his office one day and I said, I didn't know you played in the Fort Worth Symphony. I said, what's up with that? And he softened and became my friend. And I never had a problem with him after that. So it, it's all about. You know, that's that building connection right. kind of thing. Trying to find out some some kind of commonality right. between the two of you so you can get your work done, you know. Um, so I stayed with the system center for a while, all the while networking, ASM, DPMA. Uh, I wasn't allowed in SIM at that point. Um, but, you know, I was doing I was just networking like a mad woman. And I ran into Charlie Kite, who ran who was the CIO for Nations Bank. And he he and I just hit it off. And he hired me after a system center project ended. I came in and worked on his demand deposit accounting system, uh, documenting that at a code level. And then it got so huge. And he said to me, he said, well, hire somebody else to come help you. And I said, I, I can't. I, I don't I don't think I make enough money an hour. He said, well, we'll charge me more money. And wow. it was like he became a mentor, a business mentor of source of sort. Uh, and he gave me a big, a big enough raise that I could hire people. And then I was it, it kind of clicked. Right. You know how to do this. So So he basically taught you how to scale. He did. Bank. Yeah. He and did. Rudy, did you have a name for it by then or was that was that oh, still yeah. What was the name of it? I don't remember anymore. Integrate integrated documentation. That was it, yeah. Okay. And and it, the name of it was that because if you don't integrate that documentation process into your system development life cycle, all you're doing is taking a snapshot. Right. And as soon as you make a change to the system and don't change the documentation, the documentation is a lie and nobody will trust it anymore. Yeah. And that was, that was the hardest sell. People wanted me to come in and take a snapshot, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to teach their programmers then how to continue that work. So yeah. that they could keep that or or hire me, you know, whatever. They didn't want to commit to it. And it's expensive. When you document a system on the back end, it costs three times as if you had done it when you first did it. Sure. So, um, but it was a hard sell. 
And, um, but we made it, we grew from just me to, I had 25 people at, uh, when nine 11 happened, I had 25 people working for me right. and we, we did just about anything people wanted us to do. And, uh, I had to lay off all those people within an eight month period because mm. after nine, eleven, we had the dot-com bust, right. we had nine eleven. Uh, and then we had the outsourcing start right. Right. and it just, it just cratered us. Gutted um, everything, yeah. Yeah. So, so I see your, your, co your cowboy hat in the back uh, or cowgirl hat in the back there and your lasso. So when I met you, uh, you actually wore cowboy boots and a hat <laughs> everywhere you went. It was kind of like your signature look. So, right. Uh, there's a story behind that. So while yeah. you're building this business, something happened. So can, right. you, can you walk us through that story too? Yes. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1995, March 15th, Ides of March, 1995. And I, uh, we had about, we had about eight, I had about eight people working for me at that point. And I told them, I said, well, if I got to go through chemo, I'm going to need y'all to, you know, keep the business going. And they did. And we had the best year we ever had up to that point that year. Uh, but I was able to uh, uh, continue the business thanks to them. Yeah. But I lost my hair. Yeah. I lost uh, I lost my hair and I was in Texas and it was summer and there was no way I was going to wear a wig. So, um, and since I grew up a cowgirl, uh, I, I said, you know what? I live in Texas. I got rid of all my Mark Shell suits. I went straight West Texas lady rancher look. <laughs> she did too. Uh, and I had 17 nice cowboy hats. We're not talking the cheap ones that you buy at the rodeo. These were nice cowboy hats and I had uh, about 11 pairs of boots and all the matching clothes that go with it so that was that was me it became my brand although I, I lost a contract I didn't I, di I didn't I, no I never had the contract we went and bid on a project at American Airlines and we didn't get it, but I couldn't figure out why we didn't get it. And Maurice, my business partner, he said, I'm going to call him and find out why we didn't get that project. We should have had it. And they told him they didn't like that. I was wearing a cowboy hat oh at American <laughs> and in between Fort Worth and Dallas. So Maurice <laughs> let her have it. He said, I'll have, you know, she's going through chemo and she has no hair on her head. And he just let that woman, woman have, have it. And she was, she probably felt this big, but, but. Um. So Judy, I, I, um, I still do leadership development, right? And I don't know how many people I have told the story about um, um, just sit and be. Do you remember that? Remember that term? Yeah, so, my sister. And, and, yeah. So can you kind of share that? that? Yeah. You have to set up the context for it because um, it's a powerful story. 
my sister was uh, going through chemo for the second time for breast cancer. She was originally diagnosed when she was 35, I think. And she was a, a couple, she was about four years younger than me. And so she told me when I was going to have to go, go through, when I told her I was going, I was going to have to do chemo. She told me, you're just going to have to learn how to sit and be. And because I, she said, you're not going to be able to read. You're not going to be able to watch TV. You're not going to be able to do anything, engage in anything because your brain's going to be so foggy. And so just learn how to sit and be. And so I did. I learned how to do that. And I still you I still practice that. Um, if I get stressed, if I I, I, I I do a lot of breath work, I do yoga every morning um, so that um, I do meditations. Uh, and it's really helpful to make your way in the world when stressful things happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sit and be. I thankfully I have not had to go through cancer myself, but uh, but it was an instructive story. So thanks for sharing it yet again. Mm-hmm. All right. So so you're here in Texas. You uh, you survive the downturn of your business, and um, and then what go what happens next? Well, the the, the big downturn. I, I survived the first Gulf War. But I didn't survive the second one. So I had to lay off. Maurice and I laid off 25 people in eight months. Mm. We kept the business open for two years, blew through slowly, as slowly as we could, uh, our all of our reserves. And eventually we had to come to the conclusion that it just wasn't going to come back fast enough. And so we closed the business in 2003. Um, I, at that point made the, and in, in the meantime, my, my marriage fell apart, uh, whole, whole lot of stuff happened. Uh, and my, my daughter was going through a hellacious divorce here in Atlanta. And so I just decided to come back to Atlanta and, um, I was working for T-System which is a, a, a company in Dallas that um, does medical, they have, a, they have medical charting software. Mm-hmm. So um, I told them, I worked for them full time for a while, as long as I could stand it. And it wasn't because of them, it's because of me. I just right. don't corporate. <laughs> I don't play, I don't play the politics very well. Um, but, uh, they wanted to keep me on as a contractor. So I came back to Atlanta in 2004 and, um, uh, kept working for T-System until 2006. And, uh, I had decided to go back to school, um, and get my, my master's cause I, I had a goal to get my PhD before I turned 60. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was 50, 54, I think, when I decided, well, I better get busy if I'm going to make it. Yeah. 
So, and I didn't have a master's degree. So I went back and uh, decided to go to Kennesaw. I didn't want to do business. I just, it just didn't, it, it felt like been there, done that. And so I found a uh, program in conflict management at Kennesaw. And I thought that would be kind of interesting to do. And so I, that was a brick and mortar every weekend. I was at Kennesaw taking classes and got through that in 2006 um, and then went, uh, decided to, then I found the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, which was an online program, and they had a degree in transformation. Hmm. Transformative studies is what it's called. Awesome. And it was a transdisciplinary degree, which allows you to look at an area of inquiry from any angle. So I wasn't limited to psychology or physics or religion or anything like that. I could look at anything I wanted to, to inform my question. Kind of um, a, bake, a bake your own program. A bake my own program, it, yeah. which is, which is really freaking hard. Yeah. Because it gives you almost too much freedom. Well, there's no guide rails. No right? guide rail. You, you have to make it up as you go. Yep. And, and it's hard to teach in because your professor has to kind of tune in to what, where you are. So, and you have, we had probably 40 people in the cohort. So it was to teach in that program with, I, I can't even imagine having to keep up with what everybody's looking at. And we're all looking at different areas of inquiry also. But we did it through the lens of transformation. And there is a body of literature on transformation. Sure. So that was kind of our golden thread through throughout. Okay. Um, so, and as I'm going, so it was two years, two years of coursework. And then when you get done with your coursework, theoretically, you should have your lit re your literature review done and um, have a question in mind that you want to study, and then you spend a year or so writing a proposal, and then you spend a couple of years doing the research and writing your dissertation. So, um, and I kind of fell into that that schedule. A lot of people, I, I have friends, though, that went through the program with me who have never finished. I have some friends who finished in a year. I don't know how they did that, but you know, it just depends on your level of commitment and whether you're in love with what you're doing, which I was. Right. So I uh, dis I discovered this idea of flow um, as I was going through the literature on transformation. But I, I was interested and what I was interested in studying was decision making because in, in the corporate world, I had seen so many bad decisions being made and could not figure out why people, <laughs> particularly in IT. Yeah. And I just, cause that was my space, you know? So, and it just, it just drove me nuts. And I thought, why are people doing, why do people make the decisions they do? So um, as I'm, 
going down these rabbit holes on decision-making and transformation. And I find this idea of flow, uh, which comes out of the world of positive psychology. And it had been very well researched by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, Martin Seligman, and a bunch of other people. And there were actually very set characteristics of flow. And I happened to mention it to my brother-in-law, who was a retired battalion chief from Prince William County Fire Rescue. Um, And he stopped me as I was giving the characteristics of flow. And he said, I want to tell you a story. And he told me the story of Kyle Wilson, who was a, a, a firefighter who died in the line of duty on my brother-in-law's watch and my brother-in-law had to make the call not to rescue Kyle. And I realized all the characteristics of flow were in my brother-in-law's decision-making process. So my question became, became, does being in a flow state facilitate Mm decision-making? And um, I went back to my committee and I said, I want to look at fire and EMS and uh, and fire, firefighters in a flow state when they have to make a critical decision. Random. Oh, my God. Where did that come from? I have not ever, other than being around Steve, I've never been around firefighter. Right. And so this, it was so out of my uh, sphere of expectation for myself. Right. And you know, you know, Mike, I am a goal setter. Right. I I have my goals down. I know what I'm doing from year to year, and I I, I stick to it. And this wasn't even on my radar. But when I made the decision to go this way, doors began to fly open. It was crazy. It was the definition of learning of faith, I guess, because I had to trust that I was on the right path. Actually, at times felt like I was in the middle of this bright tunnel and there's this beautiful light out in front of me and there's this golden hook in my chest pulling me forward and I can't see where I'm going. That's kind of how I felt. Right. So, Judy, and, and I, I think, I mean, knowing you for as long as I have uh, and sharing some of the same characteristics, I think, that you've shared about yourself. Right. I don't I don't I, I don't like politics either. I like um, I like new challenges regularly. I'm a goal setter, yeah. you know, all that stuff. So I would say that likely you in that moment were in your own flow state. Would I you? was. Yeah. So can you can you define a little better for those who have not read the literature what flow means? Oh, sure. You know how, how does how does it happen? Is it always in your self uh, transcendent self? Is it in the self actualization self? Where you know where does it come and how do you create that flow state? For well, everybody experiences it from time to time. Mm-hmm. So um, so let me give you the characteristics of it. So flow, flow is uh, when you're working on an activity where you have uh, clear goals and you are receiving feedback in the moment so that you know that you're on the right path. Right. Um, you are, there are lots of 
opportunity for decisive action. Um, the idea that awareness and action merge. For example, one of my firefighter friends told me she was in a restaurant uh, with her family one, one evening and she caught out of the corner of her eye, a, she saw a little boy choking. Mm. And she said she doesn't remember moving from her table to where that little boy was. Mm. So that's the idea that awareness and action are the same. Sure. Um, and time is not necessarily a constant in this situation. Correct. Right? It, there's temporal distortion. Right. Some people say it's it, time speeds up. Some people say it slows down. Some are hyper aware of time, like uh, surgeons who have to do a particular uh, a particular uh, surgery will know exactly without having to look at the clock how long time has passed uh, to get it done. Mm -hmm. uh, some some people say they just have no concept of time. So it, it's different for everybody. Sure. Um, another characteristic is, is that you are, um, you feel in control. Now, Csikszentmihalyi says you might not really be in control. It's right. the idea that you feel like you're in control. Um, but that thing a, you were talking about, like there's a hook in your chest and you're being pulled through it. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not necessarily you that's doing it. It's right. It's your destiny, it's your calling, it's your energy. How would you describe that? I kind of attribute it to some kind of universal energy kind sure. of thing. I I mean it's not I my we didn't I didn't get into my current faith or spirituality earlier but but it kind of has to do with that i think i think we're I, i'm not a well go there if, you, if that's what you need in order to explain what you're saying i, I, I was going to ask you that earlier and i forgot to anyway so we know came from the church of the brethren that's yeah kind of you grew up, but then how how have you progressed through that and then we'll get back to the flow state thing okay okay so we'll jump over here yeah. Do a different slide, which is a terminology they use in fire and EMS training. So back to the spirituality slide. Right. Um, I um I was a product of the 70s. I I you know looked at Buddhism and all the other religions and you know and just kind of explored. Right. I when I grew up the Church of the Brethren is still is kind of a a mainstay for me, but I don't go to church. I'm not a right. yeah, it's a base. Right. Um, and um, but my my thinking has evolved away from an old white man with a big beard sitting in a in the clouds, which is what the Sunday school literature showed us. Pictures, sure. sure. Okay, and that I, I just that just I, I'm not there. Right there, my current. Have you seen the shock? The movie, the shock. No. Um, Is that something a, I should watch? I I would love for you to watch it, and then we can have another conversation about it. Okay. Um, it's it's a it's a kind of a hard story. I'm not going to go through the whole details, but the whole point is that God is a woman in this in the. Uh, 
in the um, interaction with God that this guy has. So that's why I was asking if that's what you're on Netflix. I don't know, but I'll find out. As soon as we get off, I'll, I'll find it for you. Okay. So I don't, I, I, the problem that I have with um, with religion as a, you know, dogma and that so kind of stuff, the rules. That we, religion. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, got it. I, 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 I just, people want to set rules for themselves. I mean, Bob, my, my ex-husband, when, when we were splitting up, he, he had never been anybody that would go to church, but he felt a need to, uh, to reconnect or to connect with some source that was spiritual and he did not want me to go with him. He wanted to find this on his own and he settled on church of Christ. And I asked him, uh, why did you choose church of Christ? And I was truly just curious. Sure. And he said, he said, because they know the rules. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay, if there's only one interpretation of the rules, there would not be all these religions out there. Right. But okay, fine. So that's kind of where he settled. But my my thinking is uh, there is a an intelligence in the universe, but I do feel like I have choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I, I was just looking up a book because I'm every time I have this conversation with somebody, I refer to this book. <laughs> Because it so well summarizes kind of that I'm in a similar place that you are. I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian by, by belief set primarily, right? Um, but I have, I have in, my, in my way of looking at things, I have an opening for other people's faith too, because I, don't, I can't claim that I know everything, right? Right, I, we I don't. Things that I know that I don't know. And then there, there's a, a bigger area that I don't know that I don't know. Right. This guy. And I, I finally found his name. It's Brian McLaren. He wrote a book called A Generous Orthodoxy. I've and heard of that. I have not a, read it. It's an excellent book. It's I actually have it on Audible, so I don't have the cover because it, he basically he basically goes through all of the different places that he either went as a parishioner or as a pastor or went to a friend's faith, you know, including Jewish and Muslim and other things. But he basically says, uh, you know, I'm a, and he, he names all, pretty much all of the different factions of what Christianity could be. Yeah. And then he says, an unfinished Christian, right? And mm-hmm. I'm like, I can, I can relate to that, right? Yeah, so, I can too. So much more um, open. Yes. But, right? So Bob, he, it was Bob, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, his answer is what a lot of people answer, right? Because at right. some level, when they go to a place that resonates with who they are, and see, that's that's why I think there are all these facets of difference within, you know, the Christian faith. Jewish congregations are not all the same. Muslim right. congregations are not all the same. Islam has got different factions to it. Exactly. Yeah. So they're all so yeah. they so so. It, it, 
there is so much difference in who we are, right? We're all, mm-hmm. I believe we're all one of one. There's nobody like Judy. There's nobody like Mike. Everybody is one of one made uniquely in the image of God. Whatever yeah. way you want to think of that, right? Right. So, so is that kind of where, does that resonate? It yeah. absolutely does. I figured my, it my, let me tell you, in a nutshell, yeah. there is a saying in uh, Buddhism called namaste. Yeah. And namaste means the God in me recognizes the God in you. Right. And that's kind of where I come at it. Yeah. And so, so for some Christians, that's a hard thing to hear. Because, yeah, they, because they keep God separate. Right, right. But God is separate. You've got the the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I know, but the whole but, the, but if you read the New Testament, it says that whenever you believe in God, that He is in you, right? Right. Jesus says, God, make them one like we are one. Well, in, in order to do that, that would mean that you would have to have him, and this is in the words of the Bible, indwell you, right? the Holy Spirit would actually have to be in you. So that doesn't offend me at all, right? No, because no, I, no. I think I think theologically that's a that's a relatively safe phrase. Yes. So you know, so I'll I'll do the namaste thing with people. Um, it's not that I that I am hundred uh, percent agreeing with exactly what they say, but I do believe Right. No, it's just your recognition yeah. that they're part of the they're, they, we're all one. Well, together. Well, at one point, there was only a man and a woman that started it all, right? <laughs> so theoretically, well, I don't know a, that that's true. <laughs> well, but I mean, if you think about it, there had to be a beginning, and at the beginning, there was a couple of people, and then they, yeah. and then they had a couple of people, and then they had a couple more people. And like that old Clairol commercial said, and and uh, they told two people, and they told two people, and so on and so on, and it just kept on going. So we're all brothers and sisters, right? We have different colors, we have different ways of of being and believing, but we are connected, right? We can't right. get away from it. We all live on this same little ball that floats around the sun. Oh my God, <laughs> it's just it's amazing to me that people people don't. The fighting and the mean spiritedness that and the right. and the cruelty right. that happens on this planet, I it, right. it's just is so mind boggling and so upsetting to me. Yes, because we're all here together. Yeah, yeah, so. and I think I think you and I are similar in that we look for positive outlets for that frustration, right? Yeah, instead of letting it instead of letting it consume you. You decide you're going to go do something in your power. In my little sphere. Exactly. Yep. So that's why. So that's why I started this show, and I was so excited yesterday when you on Facebook said, "Hey, Mike, when are you going to have me on your show?" And I'm like, "Wow, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Let's do it tomorrow." And you said yes. <laughs> so, so likewise, you know, a couple of years ago, when everybody was being hateful to each other on on uh, social media, and and everybody was pointing fingers and saying bad things about each other, I'm like, what is what is something that we can do that celebrates people like you who are servant leaders? So, you know, even though your grandfather didn't uh, didn't coin that phrase, you know, you're you're now the third generation of servant leaders. 
in your family at least, uh, to, to reach out to a broken place and try to make it a better place. And I, I, I just think we got to counter, counter with positive content. I mean, that's, that, right. that's the only thing I can think of is just to, is just to keep countering yeah. with the positive content. Do you know who Greg Braden is? Have you ever yes. read? Yes. So have you have listened you to his, Have you read his book, How, uh, The Isaiah Effect? I don't know if I've read that one. My wife has a couple of his books. I've read it. I've listened to him more than I've read. Okay. He, he, has, he has podcasts on YouTube and Spotify and stuff. But um, he references in one of his books, I have it, it's on Audible as well. I don't remember which one it is, that there was a study at Princeton where um, they had a group of people that would uh, pray for a particular city. And yeah. they would say, okay, we're going to focus. And these are people from all over the world, right? Yep. We're going to focus on, what was the name of your city? in, uh, in Broadway. Broadway. So we're going to pick us. It's not, but let's just say they were. Right. Right. And then, and they would for, for months pray for love and peace and light and positivity. And, um, and they had, they had some sort of measurement devices right. and, and it would come back that whenever they were praying for that city, the crime rate would go down and, uh, and uh, suicide would go down. You know, yeah, that's out of the Isaiah effect, which is okay. how to how to pray. Okay, he, talks to, he actually went and and translated one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Isaiah Scroll, which is not the same as Isaiah in the Bible. Right. It's a different. It's a different book. Okay, and it talks about the technology of prayer. Right, and it is it is that people. I didn't. I didn't tell you the corollary to my breast cancer. Um, diagnosis in 1995 it's back oh my judy so hmm. um i was diagnosed with a uh myopathy in 2018 hmm. um uh, which is a, a a sickness of the muscles so my muscles are and, and the word necrosis is in the diagnosis which is really ugly that's not so i'm losing mobility okay. uh, but one and it's an autoimmune thing and it it one of the side things that can happen is that malignancies can occur. So mm. my breast cancer has come back. Mm. So I'm having a double mastectomy on July 12th. Oh, so boy. people people say, "Well, I'll pray for you," and I'm going like, "Okay, do it." Yeah, no, it's kidding. So you know, I I'm, I know when I had it in '95, all people were thinking about me. And I know that's what helped me get through it. Right. So, I mean, it, prayer is prayer, meditation, alignment right. with source, right. out, whatever you want to call it. Right. Sending light. You know, if you imagine you're sending light and love to somebody, same thing. It's all the same. Right. It's, a, it's about, uh, and, and Greg Braden in his book talks about how, what you want to do is imagine the person uh, in the final state that you want them to be in. You right. don't pray for something right. because when you pray for something, you are admitting it doesn't exist now. 
So you want to pray whatever it is you want to happen. Right. Which is a hard thing for people to glom onto. So when I, when my grandchildren, one of the things that I used to tell them is a man at the beat when they went through this really horrible divorce, I, I would take them to school. And I say, now, before you get out of the car, I want you to close your eyes and imagine having a really good day at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. What does that feel like? Right. And that is the prayer. Right. And then and then live into it. And yes. basically, you're basically stating what the day, what the reality is that and is then right. making that reality become. Yeah. When you when you can feel it within yourself. Right. That's what that is the prayer. Yeah. So and that's what the Isaiah effect is about. Okay. So. I'll check it out. I, I have not heard that. Now um we could talk about this a little bit later offline maybe, but uh have you ever heard of Dr. Jack Cruz? Mm-mm. I think he's in Mississippi. He he's from uh Louisiana State University, but he's a neurosurgeon and a quantum physicist. So Ooh, he's, like he's, basically him, he's caught himself quantum physics, uh, uh, physics. Um, but his, his big deal right now is to get in, get into the morning sun, into sunlight. Um, and that, um, you know, all these in my, in my studio right now, I have two big halogens, uh, lights on, but I turned my other lights off because, um, he says that we are a blue light toxic uh, species right now. Ever since uh, the 1880s, when uh, when Tesla and Westinghouse illuminated the uh, World Fair, wow! Uh, all of this light that we are turning on at night yes. is separating us from the circadian rhythm that we were designed to live in. So most of these white lights that we have actually are blue light. Uh, uh, in in frequency, yeah, and that tells us that it's it's noon every time we look at a light. So if we're if we go into our into our bathroom at ten o'clock at night and we turn the light on, we're telling our body it's noon. So you know when people have chronic problems trying to sleep and things yeah. like that. So um, so anyway, Arlene and I have been on an interesting journey over the last little bit. And I'll, I'll share some of that stuff with you, but, but by and large, you know, and I'll ask everybody that's listening to this, because I think this is going to come out on the seventh. So it'll still be before your uh, surgery that the, 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 the outcome that I see for you is a fully healthy Judy uh, without cancer. Right. Yep. And that's, that's what you're talking about. Right. So Pray for what the reality will be, not for the sickness, because by praying for the sickness, you're basically energizing the fact that there is a sickness. Exactly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray that there is no sickness, that this is this is the the reality will come that you are 100 percent cancer free. Right. Um, And I think that's that's in alignment with everything that I've been taught. It's just a, it's just a, it turns your thinking around, right? Yeah. To pray for what the reality should be rather than what it is. Right. And then, and then um, there's a book, uh, Dr. Charnel, and I can't remember her last name. It's called the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the science of miracles. 
she also talks about quantum biology and how some of that stuff works. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm basically sending you love and light and, and <laughs> playing you. as we're talking. Cause the, the cool thing about life, I think in general, and the older we get and the less worried we become about what other people think about who we are or what we do is that we can live in flow constantly. Right. In the Bible, it talks about walking with God. You know, it talks about Abraham walked with God and everybody walked. Well, everybody can walk with God. You can walk with God, talk with God. You, you, you probably don't want to do it out loud all the time. <laughs> I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that either, right? But then, but then in that way, then we're saying, you know, this is the reality that you already know is existing, right? Yeah. Uh, just you know, I'd like that to come for Judy, right? Because that's the way that uh, that I'd love her to be able to impact more people. So I'm, I'm making you an honorary fire chief. I told you I was going to do this because your book, your book was accepted by this fire organization. So fire, tell me- fire, fire Chief Magazine named it the number one public safety leadership book of 2016. Yeah. And what's the name of that book? It's called Flow-Based Leadership. Yeah. What the best firefighters can teach you about leadership and making hard decisions. Awesome. And it's a mashup of my PhD, um, my dissertation and follow up. Um, and it, I kind of kind of stopped short of telling you about well, my. Well, I wanted to get the, get the, the background behind what you were going to say. So, oh, okay. so now, we're, now we're there. So you've, you've, you're doing your study and then, and then how did it go? How did it come out, I guess, is the way. To think well, the, I, I went back to my committee and told them I wanted to look at firefighters. And they said, okay, go talk to 16 firefighters, eight men and eight women. Let's see if they wanted to make sure there wasn't a gender difference. Um and um, I had the characteristics of flow and I would sit with them or be on the phone with them or whatever. And I would give them the characteristics and they would just about jump out of their skin to tell me right. stories. And right. I got, I collected 49 stories. Yeah. I analyzed the heck out of them for two years, wrote the dissertation and, uh, and I, I defended two weeks short of my 60th birthday, so I made it. Yay! <laughs> Another goal accomplished. <laughs> and um, and then uh, one of the one of the people that was in my study was David Rhodes, who is a he is, heads up an extreme experiential training program in fire and EMS called Georgia Smoke Diver. And they are not the guys that jump out of the plane. These are structural firefighters. The purpose of that program is to make firefighters better and to keep them safe because uh, it teaches them how to get out of uh, extreme situations, you know, if so that they don't die on a scene. Right. right. So uh, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like the equivalent of Navy SEALs Hell Week. It's right. pretty intense. Right. So, but he invited me to a training in November of 2011. And I just, I have been going ever since. I've been to 25 trainings. They've spun off 
Oklahoma Smoke Diver and uh, Indiana Smoke Diver. I've been to their trainings. I've been to their leadership. Con I've speak at their leadership conferences and and I've studied them. I and uh, and I was so impressed with the program mm -hmm. and how they've been able to evergreen themselves since 1978. So firefighters have like a 20 to 30 year span. Some of them stay in a little bit longer than that. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, they come into this program and um, over time, you know, they age out. Uh, and once you, once you are not working, if you retire from the fire department, you can't go into the burn building anymore because you don't, you aren't covered insurance wise and stuff like that. And so they have to constantly evergreen the next group of leaders to run this program. And now we have, uh, I'm thinking it's around 1400 smoke divers. When I first started, there were only 400 and now there are a thousand more just in Georgia and in Oklahoma and, and uh, Indiana, you've got, there's probably I think Oklahoma has about 100 now and Indiana probably has about 200. But um, so it's a lot of a lot of people. So and, they're, basically, they're basically being taught how to assess the situation and act in a flow way. Uh, flow, flow. They don't talk about flow. OK. They're 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 training for situations. So. They use the NIOSH report, reports of line of duty deaths to create new uh, props and new uh, exercises that they do. There, for example, there's a, a drill that is done all around the world called the Denver drill. And this is a drill that uh, happened as a result of a firefighter in Denver getting caught in a hallway it had a window at the end and they and there were firefighters outside that could see that he was down and he he was unresponsive and they couldn't get him out and he died mm -hmm. but there is a way to get him out there are methods that have been developed now and so they teach that and the and the 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 hallway was like very narrow maybe 20 inches it's wow. really tiny and so they teach teach them uh, how to, and they do it incrementally. So the first, early in the week, you're doing things, you're doing components of, mm. of, uh, of things. Like you learn how to package, what they call package a firefighter. How do you get them ready to save them if mm. they're unresponsive? How, how do you, how do you lift them up? How do you, uh, how do you, secure them so their legs don't get caught on something, you know, when you're moving them and that kind of thing. And then as the week goes on, things happen like they'll black out your mask so you can't see. Uh, then you get put in a situation where you have cold smoke. You can't see, but it isn't fire. Uh, but then by the end of the week, you're actually doing all these drills in fire. So Thursday is heat day and it's pretty, and they do simulated flashovers and they do all kinds of things to, to really 
push the student to to understand so that they so so that when they get out in the real world they're just giving them experiential training sure so that when they get out there already been there done they've that they've already been there yeah and they their their subconscious kind of takes over doing Must the memory. yes yeah, yeah. So it's that it's that uh, unconscious um what is it first you're um you're consciously unable to do it then you're able to do it i can't remember the exact terminology right right but then finally you're unconsciously competent competence that's what it yes. is yes and that way you can just do it without thinking and that way you save your life and the buddy that you have and then judy you actually did this whole thing yourself right they put you yeah, not just, no i didn't go through smoke diver okay. but i did go through axioms of leadership which is a firefighter training okay um, Axioms of Leadership is was started actually uh, by one of the Smoke Daddies. That uh, Smoke Daddy is the spiritual <laughs> leader of this Georgia Smoke Diver. Okay. Uh, so um, they call him the spiritual leader. Right. But um, so Scott Millsap is uh, he was the fourth smoke daddy of Georgia smoke diver. And he started a, um, a program called flames and which is a three day event that you don't sleep. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, and then he also started axioms of leadership. Mm. And so uh, Mo Baxter, who we lost this year to stomach cancer, unfortunately, Mo, um, sat down and we were sitting and talking he's he's very you would have loved talking to him mike he he's so much you and he would have been right on the same page yeah. but he he's we were at indiana smoke diver and we he and i were having this philosophical conversation and he said uh he said you ought to go through axioms i said no i have been through it i have been to axioms i can't do that I said, I, you got to be strong to go through that. And he said, no, you don't. He said, he said, you can, you don't have to be strong. And I went, okay. <laughs> and he talked me into it. So I did it. And he was right because it's more of a leadership program and your team gets you through it. That's where you learn to trust the people in your team. So I basically became a prop. <laughs> They, they, we would have carrying you. Yeah, let's get Judy across here and we'll be okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, but I met so many wonderful people in that program. Yeah. So, um, but that I, I have been through that program, but not smoke diver. Mm. I could never do that. So. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, we've we've uh, we actually blew past the hour about no. seven minutes ago. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's awesome. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about now? We, uh, you, you know, maybe in the next month or so, we can get back together and you can talk about. Well, let's do this. We'll say after you're successfully cancer free. Okay. Uh, We'll, we'll reconnect and talk about what it is that you're doing from a, a, a business perspective and a lifestyle perspective and, and all that stuff. 
Um, that would be good because I'm I'm writing this. Every time I do these talks on flow-based leadership, people want to know how can I maximize my flow states every day. Right. right. And I'm writing that book right good. now. Okay. So we we'll get back together and I'll talk about that and talk about how people can do that. And then just for uh, for sake of if people want to follow you, they can do that on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn. Then all your books are on Facebook. Yeah. And then your your uh, your books are on Amazon, I'm guessing. Yes. So if they just look up Judy Glick Smith PhD, will they find the books? Uh, it'll be just type in G L I C K dash S M I T H, and I, I'm the only one. Glick Smith. Glick. Yeah. Smith. Yeah. It's right there, spelled. Right. Okay. Very good. Well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask right now that uh, that you bow your head. I'm gonna go ahead and pray for you now. Okay, dokey. So, Father in heaven, thank you for Judy. Uh, she's been a blessing to uh, to hundreds or thousands of people in her career. We ask that you will see her through uh, this cleansing of anything that is ill for her. But we envision her as a purely cancer-free individual in the next few weeks, and we ask that you help to make that a reality. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Judy, until we meet again, I'll talk to you soon and I'll look forward to some updates on Facebook uh, when you're successfully through this. Okay. Thank you, Mike. All right. Love you. Talk to you soon. Love you too. See you later. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Hello, friends. I'm finally writing a book to codify the basis for my signature Mike Rochelle & Associates Corporate Leadership Accelerator course. And I need an upvote from you to gain favorable publishing status. It is co-titled Growing the Next Version of You, The Leadership and Accelerator, a journey for growing success in life, love, and leadership. Greetings and welcome to the Growing the Next Version of You show. Every week or so, I get together with thought leaders and we talk about the trends that are happening in the world and we think of life from a mind, body, and spirit perspective because that's what servant leaders do. So join me 